Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people, or awakened in this case. <laughs> I've done nearly 400 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to see other ones, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P.com, and look under the past interviews menu where you'll find all the previous ones organized in several different ways. This show is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, there is a PayPal button on, on the site. I'm very honored today to have as my guest His Holiness Sri Shivarudra Balayogi, affectionately known as Baba Maharaj. Baba is a self-realized yogi, one who has completed the path of yoga and attained union with the Supreme Consciousness. A direct disciple of Sri Shiva Balayogi Maharaj, he entered his guru's service at the age of 19 and was later initiated into sannyas, a monastic life of pure devotion and service. He was placed in charge of the Dehradun Ashram in India where he spent 20 years absorbed in intense spiritual practice, combining selfless service, devotion to his guru, and deep meditation. Following the Mahasamadhi, the passing from this world's physical form of his guru in 1994, <clears throat> Sri Shiva Rudra Balayogi was initiated into the spiritual practice of tapas, in which he meditated for an average of 20 hours a day continually for the next five years. The culmination of this was the attainment of the goal of all spirituality, self-realization, the permanent union of the mind with the supreme peace of infinite pure consciousness. He now travels the world carrying on his guru's mission of teaching jnana meditation, true devotion, and selfless service. Baba Maharaj is the embodiment of gentleness and compassion. His life itself is his teaching, devotion, selfless service to humanity, and unrelenting effort in striving for, for spiritual perfection. Sri Babaji offers initiation into the technique of jnana meditation, which he used to achieve self-realization freely and without obligation. He engages audiences worldwide with this profound spiritual insight drawn from deep personal experience rather than scriptural study. Although I imagine there was some scriptural study also, but primarily the, the emphasis is on personal experience. His teachings are the purest form of the sublime philosophy of self-realization taught by the ancient sages of India. So again, welcome, Baba. It's, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. We are also honored. It's my understanding that the word Bala means boy. Is that correct? Uh, in one way, that is correct. In another way, it's uh, one of the names of Goddess Parvati. That was how my guru was also named as Shiva Bala. I thought maybe it meant that you had been a yogi since you were a boy, but uh, now I understand. <clears throat> you know, I think it was back in the 70s or something that I read a book about your guru and um, or saw some pamphlet or something. We didn't have the internet in those days. And he was kind of like the Buddha boy who was that young boy these days who just spends long, long amounts of time in samadhi. And when you, when you first came to my attention, I, I thought you were him. Uh, but then I realized, of course, that, you know, you are his student. But anyway, I've known about him for yeah. a long time. Yeah, my guru, when he sat for tapas, he was just 14 years old. The strange divine experience when he was trying to squeeze out 
juice from a fruit. Uh, that fruit took shape of a shivalingam. Uh, Omkar sound came out, and when that shivalingam broke into two pieces, he saw a jangama sage standing in front of him, and that jangama sage initiated him into tapas, twelve years tapas. What does so jangama by... mean? Uh, Jangama means an eternal existence, uh, a real meaning. So, in the area where my guru was born, people who adored the Shivalingams and who are followers of Shiva worshippers, they were known as Jangama sage, the, who would be concentrating or worshipping and meditating on the eternal existence of the divinity as Lord Shiva. And uh, yeah, as I recall, your your guru was extremely bright as a child. He left school at the age of five to uh, help support his mother, who was a widow. And uh, he and he was from a family of weavers, and he excelled in that profession even at such a young age, producing about twice as much as other people in the shop. Yeah, he had uh, some inborn qualities of. Uh, total dedicated, courageous approach and disciplined, honesty, uh, hang on to it. Once he was like a do or die type of boy. So that was when he understood this is the thing we used to hear from his mouth that at the age of five, he understood that they were poor. But he also got educated by his uncle that poverty is not a thing to be ashamed. It's only circumstances, a situation. Through hard work and honesty, one can overcome. That was when my guru decided that uh, I should drop out of the school because even if I graduate one day, I'll be earning some money, which I can do it now itself. So he got into the job of weaving and he became so focused in his work that uh, when others would work the same thing in one hour, he would do it in half an hour. So that much of hard work he's put. He was uh, like that by nature. In a moment's notice, he would be ready to undertake any hard task. And when you were that age, when you were a young boy, five, six, etc., did you have a yearning for God or were you just a regular kid? Just uh, Around the age of seven or the first that uh, I started having an earning for God, that was when I heard Adi Shankara's Bhajagovindam song. My sister was reciting at home. The first stanza uh, had such an impact. Sing the glory of divine. Remember in your consciousness because when your physical body dies, None of your worldly knowledge, wisdom, nothing can come to your rescue. So this had an impact and I became obsessed with the death thought. I wanted to know what is death, what is birth, and how are we connected to God? So what has God to do with these things? So that was how an earning started. And after reading a little bit about Adi Shankara, I started praying, God grant me a guru who would have liberated himself and who could lead me towards liberation. That was how it started for me. It's kind of reminiscent of Raman Maharshi also, you know, whose uncle died and then he was like pondering death and 
what it's all about. <laughs> that kind of gave him his, his kickstart. Yeah, somewhat like that. Uh, wanted to know the secret of that, who really dies. And also another thought came, ki, if we are that soul, why is that I'm not aware in my consciousness? What has made me to forget? I must know that. So this thing uh, made me to go towards spirituality. How old were you when you met your guru? Uh, 15 years in 1971, uh, while I was studying in Mysore University. It was also a, through a divine experience. Uh, in, my, in front of my house, there was a Hanuman temple. Every day, early morning, I used to go and spend a couple of hours. The idols were my best friends. I used to be talking to them in my bhava about the soul and who am I and when can you appear in front of me. I always dreamt that God would appear to me suddenly one day and take me to his fold. That was one day when I was contemplating about the soul. In my ears, I heard a voice whispering that Shiva Bala Yogi is your guru. You will get everything from him. So when I opened my eyes and looked around, I didn't see anybody. I was wondering who could have told me this. Who is Shiva Bala Yogi? I didn't know anything about him. So for the next two or three days, I went around into different temples of Mysore city with the idea that the person who had whispered into my ears about Shiva Bala Yogi would recognize me, might come again and give me some details about uh, Shiva Bala Yogi. So finally, on the third day, when I was walking through the streets in the market, I heard the voice whispering again, go to Raghavendra Swami temple, uh, you will find about your Guru. Saint Raghavendra lived in northern part of Karnataka state of southern India, who was also a great self-realized soul but propagated Bhakti Marga. He has uh, uh, muts all over southern part of India. He is very well known in that part. Let's, let's pause so just for I a went. second to define a few terms. So muts are like temples, right, or, or ashrams. And, yes. And yes. Bhakti Marga means the path of devotion, right? So yes. I just want to yes. explain that for anybody who doesn't know those terms. Okay, please continue. Uh, so I went to that uh, temple. Uh, a priest was narrating Lord Krishna's story, Bhagavata, and I listened to it one hour. So at the end of the story, one old man came and spoke to me. Why are you here listening to God? Have you fought with your parents? Means in the society, there was a notion that you go towards God only after retirement, age of 60 and above, not before that. You should be enjoying the world. I said, I haven't done anything, but I'm looking for Shiva Bali Yogi. He said, Shiva Bali Yogi is my guru. He has an ashram in Bangalore. Bangalore is about a three hours journey by road from Mysore. And the place where I was born, it was Kolar town in southern part of Karnataka. Uh, that is also about 90 kilometers from Bangalore. But I had never heard about Shiva Bala Yogi's name. So the saying is that the right moment has to come for you to know your guru. 
So then he took me home and gave my guru's small biography. By watching into the beautiful photographs of my guru's tapas time photos, I had already fallen in love with him. And after three days, I went to return the book to that gentleman. He said, Ki, Swamiji, my guru was affectionately known as Swamiji. So he is coming to Mysore city on a public program. You come and meet him. So I was quite thrilled. Uh, what a lucky person I am. I have come to know about Swamiji just now and he is coming physically to this town. So on third day, I went with him and uh, I met him at the foothills of Chamundi in Mysore is the presiding deity is uh, goddess Parvati Chamundishwari. At that foothills, uh, Swamiji was coming on the invitation of a monk who was living there. So when Swamiji came and got down from the car, I was instantly drawn. It was like a love at sight. I became, it was dumbfound for me. Something inside told me, this is the person you had been waiting for. So for about one or two hours, he came inside, people washed his feet and everybody were coming to have his darshan, touch his feet and take his blessings. I thought if I touch his feet, I would be sent out. I just wanted to be watching him. So I came next to him and just stood there all the time looking. My eyes were so drawn to him. I was a totally inexplicable experience. So the person who had accompanied me, he was looking for me. Where have you gone? Finally, when he came in the queue, he told me, come and touch his feet. Come and take his blessing. I signal you, please go, I will come later. I just want to be watching him, that's all. So finally, when my guru got up, I just touched his feet and Swamiji went away. I came home, I spoke to my mother for about two to three hours. I was uh, arguing and trying to convince her. She was trying to get convinced whether I am really into that or momentarily excited. That's what she wanted to see, whether I am determined. So finally, she said, Ki, stay with me for another three years. So by then you will finish your education also. So even after three years, if your mind is unwavering and totally concentrated to go to your guru, then I will bless and send you there. So for the next three years, I stayed with her. And whenever she permitted, once in six months, I used to go to Bangalore ashram. Uh, they used to organize functions on the day of my guru's birthday and the day of his tapas completion. So once in a year like that. So during that function, after the Homa ceremony, he would start giving darshan. He would sit on a tiger skin erected dais and devotees would be allowed to enter into the room and then come out of the room in a queue. <coughs> I had become so madly drawn to him just to watch. I never spoke to him anything. There was nothing to ask. I used to join the queue, come inside, touch his feet all the time watching him, then come out, again join the queue, and again come inside the room. So for four or five hours like that, it used to go on and on like that. 
so much I was drawn. Finally, in 1974, my mother permitted, she took a promise, once you go, I don't want you to come back. You must achieve on this path. So if you come back, I won't be able to show my face to relatives. So you must achieve, go that. So I took her leave and on her blessings. My guru sent me to Dehradun Ashram. So I am based there. It's now 43 years. That's how I joined my guru finally. Beautiful story. Um, thinking back now from your current perspective, who or what do you think that voice was that whispered in your ear that your guru's name before you had even met him or heard of him? That's really a mystery. Some divine voice because I didn't get to see any personality. There was nobody there. But all I remembered was the name of Shiva Balayogi. This was very clear to me. So I knew that one. And in fact, just one day before I met my guru physically, Swamiji came in a dream also. A dream experience was also very beautiful. It was pitch darkness. I'm standing in the cube. Somebody comes and take me inside the room, telling if Swamiji is waiting for you, why are you in the queue here? So from back door, they take me inside. Swamiji is sitting there on a tiger skin. So he asked me, what do you want? I think by practice of reading Adi Shankara's teachings, Jnana, Bhakti, Vairagya, means Jnana is the knowledge of the ultimate truth. And bhakti is a devotion to that truth so that I can achieve. And vairagya is a detachment to the impermanent universe world. So these were the things I asked him. So he blessed me and gave me a mantra. Om Shivaya Shivabala Yogindraya Parabrahmanaya. He said, Ki, if you chant this mantra, you will come to me very soon. So then... I, when I got up, I was already chanting. Another thing also happened in the dream. Excuse me. Oh, that was the dream that you got that mantra. Yes, yes. In the dream, I got this mantra. Well, after this mantra, he gave a stick to me, telling you will get everything from this. I tell in the dream, I want Swamiji only. Then he takes back that stick. If you want God... This stick is of no use. This can give you only worldly things. So then breaking that, he throws, throws it away. Then the dream ends. I was up early morning. When I wake up, I was reciting that mantra, Om Shivaya, Shivabala Yugindraya, Parabrahmanaya. So that was how some divine experiences happened, which are really inexplicable to this day. I can only say it was divine grace. Yeah, I always find it fascinating that the divine can work in that way. And um, it's, you know, Carl Jung used to talk of synchronicities and how all these little signs and, and things would show up in the environment that were s synchronous with, you know, s some event taking place or something you were thinking and, and so on. It's just it fascinates me that the, how the divine actually functions to give people hints and even say things to them and give them dreams and all. You, I always wonder about the mechanics of that. Yeah, definitely. Certain things are very inexplicable. You, It happens. It happened to me. 
though i myself have always tried to understand spirituality in a scientific way exactly as it is the facts i wanted to go to the ultimate truth that was one reason i didn't want to become a big scholar though i got introduced to adi shankara ramana maharishi and ramakrishna paramahamsa are the three saints and read a little bit about these their teachings but i thought i must experience the truth to myself so that i don't get into imagination in a particular way about the truth let me see what it is but certain things have happened uh, it's so difficult to answer ki how did it happen in what way when did i resolve to have such an experience probably through my previous lives i was doing sadhana and which brought me in this life in contact with my guru and these divine experiences that's all i could say yeah i'm reminded of krishna and the gita saying that the mechanics of karma are unfathomable by human intellect you know <clears throat> yes very true you know these days there's a tendency among many spiritual people uh to say things like the age of the guru is over you know and um you know you can be your own guru or tik nat han the vietnamese zen buddhist monk said the next buddha will be the may be the sangha you know the gathering of people um and in part this sort of attitude i think has arisen because many gurus who have come from the east and even some who have sprouted up in the west have you know misbehaved in various ways and it's kind of given the whole field a bad name so you know what would you say to people who have that kind of attitude who feel that you know the age of the guru is over you don't need a guru and so on is is a guru an absolute necessity would you say for spiritual realization or or can it be that some people actually don't need one i would definitely recommend a guru disciple relationship that too as i myself dreamt from childhood that the guru shall be the one who would have liberated himself and who could lead me towards liberation i have always told when you get such a self realized guru who would come in a human form it's like a bonus for you though the guide guidance might come from within also from the divine's grace but to have a human guru who would be a self realized soul is one of the rarest of rare things to happen if you are really lucky if you are really blessed to have that one so that was when uh, when i met my own guru i felt i had the t- chance of serving him for 20 years very closely i saw him closely how a jivan mukta a self realized guru would be because uh, when i read about adi shankara or ramana maharshi or ramakrishna i started dreaming i must uh, meet a guru of that caliber that is the right thing i think i was lucky or destined or blessed by the grace of the divine i happened to me so i would definitely recommend if one is lucky one must dream or pray to god to have such a guru because like my guru himself has answered to this having such a guru means you keep walking on the path 
you think that you know the path but suddenly you come to a circle from where several roads bifurcate at that is the time you need a guru to guide you towards the right path a right guru a self realized guru would insist upon what you have to do again and again like many times uh, people come and question me again and again they imagine an instant coffee type of things happening like uh, a miracle should happen somebody should come i think i said ke miracles might happen like in my own case but a self effort is also very necessary like my guru used to tell the divine came and made him to sit for tapas but after that for 12 years it was his effort his determination his courage like the my guru used to tell the, the divine shiva came and made me to sit for tapas but afterwards he grinded me into chutney and cut me into pieces by testing so the eligibility is always tested at that time you would need a guru to guide you on to the right path and keep inspiring you keep going if i have achieved you can also do it so that way i would definitely recommend a guru disciple relationship of course you grew up in india and the at least the more traditional indian understanding is very clear about the value of a guru i guess these days a lot of indians are trying to reject that and look to the west but in any case in your family and your upbringing it was a strong sentiment um however in the west you know we really don't have that upbringing so much so what has been your experience with regard to the contrast between india and the culture there in terms of appreciating a guru or the need for one and the west uh in in that respect uh so far the people that i have come across i would tell 50 50 uh in fact there are many people who have appreciated this guru disciple relationship that uh, i have been coming to america since uh, 12 13 years now and have been traveling to the several cities people i have met have been able to appreciate this uh, guru disciple relationship and it was uh, an american devotee Ch- charlie hopkins who dreamt of bringing me to america he was my guru's uh, devotee uh, in fact he only introduced charles sewers agastya to me they were all very good friends in old days uh, so that was how so he himself recommended that i must write commentary on guru gita guru gita is a wonderful scripture uh, which comes in the skanda purana of legendary stories it is a conversation between goddess parvati and lord shiva lord shiva explains the qualities of a guru a real guru self realized guru and what should be the qualities of a disciple all these things have been explained so i have written commentary on that fact also so when i wrote that there were some who wrote negative comments on that Uh, because uh, in that forward first sentence i wrote was the first time i heard about a gurus and gurus qualities 
was from my mother as a child, who said, even if God gets annoyed, a guru can protect you. But if guru gets annoyed, no God can protect you. That was the cultural background that we were brought up. But for that, that person was very, very, and he commented, so where does this guru comes? It is the God who has to be the almighty and super. But then I tried to explain to him in our culture, guru's place has been given very, very important. Like Kabir Das has sung, Guru Govinda Dono Kade Kine Ke Lago Pai Balihari Guru Apano Govinda Dio Batai means he tells if suddenly Guru and God both comes in front of me and stands, so then the mind is confused for a while. To whom should I prostrate first? But then the mind comes out of the confusion and decides, Oh my Guru. Let me prostrate to you first, because it is you who told me about God. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known about God. So this is the culture I explained to him. Then he was happy and he accepted. Like when I have explained the small groups that uh, practice meditation in America and uh, Europe also, they have accepted this fact of uh, guru-disciple relationship. So I think if we explain to them the culture and the need of this, why the Guru is considered uh, to such an important factor, so then they will definitely be able to understand and appreciate. I alluded briefly a minute ago to some people getting disillusioned with Gurus because many Gurus who have come to the West have been caught misbehaving in various ways. What would you say to people who may have had some experience with a guru but became disillusioned for that reason? What would you say to maybe inspire them or restore their faith in the possibility of being with a genuine guru or finding one? One thing I have told them, to anybody, any seeker, your own sincerity is very important. Then you would not compromise for any other teachings and you would not expect any other thing from the Guru. So if you want self-realization, spiritual truths, all these things are the important. And you will not accept if a Guru is trying to do some miracle of bringing out a chain or a ring. These are not the important things. A God is not coming just to give you a ring. And a few hundred dollars can make you to fly in the air at 38,000 feet. You don't need tapas or God for these things. God or the self-realized guru comes to give you the highest things of self-realization. So you will also find a right guru. So when you are sincere, so that is very important. What you need, what you are looking for. Like as children... After I became started aiming for God and read about Adi Shankara and all these things, we also came across so many gurus in India itself who were doing miracles or who would do this type of thing. But those things never attracted to me. I couldn't accept them as guru. Finally, only when I met Shiva Bali Yogi, who had done 12 years tapas and who gave the message on the completion of his tapas, 
that uh, humanity have forgotten themselves. They must do sadhana to know themselves. This attracted me towards Shiva Bali Yogi and I understood that this is the right Guru. He will not compromise. I also will not compromise for anything else. So if we go like this, we will definitely be able to find the right type of Guru and we should not expect any easy methods also. So then we will definitely find the right Guru. Yeah, I can think of a number of stories of seekers who had very strong desire and very ardent faith and it, it almost didn't matter what guru they found, it was their faith and their desire that, that carried them through. Like for instance that story in the Mahabharata about Dhruva, you know, uh, Arjuna's archery teacher and and Eklava, he, he sent him away, and Eklava just made a little statue and worshipped that and kind of became the best archer <laughs> because of his ardent focus. And then you told the story in one of your books about that boy who was a buffalo herder. Yes, Kanakadasa. That is the story of Kanakadasa, who was a great bhakti poet and self-realized soul who lived about 500 years ago in Karnataka during the Vijayanagara Empire times. So as a child, once he had gone out looking after the buffaloes, so he saw some priests worshipping God. He got attracted to the chants of mantras and then he goes to them. He requests them, please teach me how to do this worship of God like this, I also want to do. I felt very fascinated by your chants and all. The priests made fun of him. You are only a buffalo-looking boy looking after that. So what can you learn about these things? You do one thing. Go and sit under the tree. Start repeating buffalo, buffalo, buffalo. You will get it. But that boy was so innocent and his heart was so pure. He took the priest's words to be a command of a guru, straight away went and sat under the tree and started repeating buffalo, buffalo, buffalo. And the story says he, he had the vision of Lord Yama coming on a buffalo and initiated him into the mantra of Lord Keshava, one of the forms of Krishna, who eventually became a self-realized soul. He was guided to go to another guru, Vyasatirtha of those times, who was a self-realized soul. He went and Vyasatirtha admitted him to his monastery. There is another small story that happened in his life, Kanakadasa's life, where the Guru wanted to teach other students. Whereas other students who were from an upper class community, they looked down at this boy that he is only a buffalo boy. What can he learn? So one day the Guru wanted to teach them a lesson. He gave bananas to all the students and told them, all of you go and you must eat this banana where nobody would be watching you. You must take care of this and then come back and report to me. So this is such an easy thing. All the boys thought they all went and within one hour they came back. They were supposed to come back before sunset. So, but this Kanakadasa had not yet come. Other boys were murmuring. Today, the boy is going to be kicked out of the institution. 
this small job that the guru gave to test the intelligence that no, where nobody is watching you you go and eat the banana so this thing also he couldn't do everybody reported oh master i ate the banana behind the bushes i ate the banana behind the door i went on the other side of the uh, mountain and ate nobody was watching i can assure you the guru smiled and kept quiet finally kanakadas came before sunset in the evening he brought back that banana and kept at the feet of master saying my master i am really sorry i failed because i tried to eat this banana where i thought nobody would be watching i went behind the bushes behind the doors everywhere into the jungle everywhere lord keshava was watching me all the time and i couldn't take out from his eyes then the master ridicules see this is the knowledge and wisdom the consciousness that has arisen to that level that he can see only god everywhere when god is everywhere how can you uh, eat a thing that nobody is watching god always watches you from your heart so that was how that is the faith and knowledge wisdom that comes i had a feeling that was going to be the moral of that story <laughs> very nice story so a bit more on the guru disciple thing and then that i want to talk more about tapas and the meditation you teach and everything there was just a nice example from your own time with your guru where he sent you to a remote part of the ashram and told you to stay there until he came to get you and then hours went by and you were staying there and and he sent a message okay you can come now and you had to you stayed because he said you were supposed to stay there till he came to get you and then people would come and say he's getting angry you really better come you wouldn't move until he finally came to get you and then he said you know okay you passed the test yes yes i remember this was uh, way back in 1978 i was visiting his bangalore ashram so to the for the office work they had bought a table these table and chairs were made in prisons by the prisoners who work on this and it was bought by the ashram and it was brought and kept there so in the evening after darshan was over my guru just asked me hey you go and sit there uh, that is the new office table and chair and see if you like that one i jokingly said ki swami ji please give me a sweet to eat then i will go and sit down some people had brought some coconut sweets just then and offered to him he said ki i am telling you to go and sit there and you are asking this sweet okay i will give this sweet now you take this sweet go and sit there but on one condition until i come there you should not get up okay i said i went and sat every night after his foot he would come out again he go around walking into the hall and to the outside compound also but that day deliberately swami ji did not come out he went inside he ate the food after he ate the food all the boys ate he had instructed to the kitchen boy do not give him any food there on to the table tell him if he comes to the kitchen you will feed him that is no problem and tell him it is time he should go and eat swami ji is not going to come out they came i said ki no 
I will have to sit here because Swamiji has told until he doesn't come here, I should not get up. So then they all made fun. They tried. They went. Again, Swamiji sent word that uh, Swamiji is getting very annoyed. He is very shouting and irritated. Don't make these dramas and nonsense things. You should get up and go and eat food. And that's enough of you. So I said, you know, I'm not going to go there. Somehow that day, a determination came. I thought he is going to test me. I said, okay, I will not go away. So I sat there. Everybody slept. It was midnight around early morning, 3.30. He started coming. So when he came to near me, so I was just sitting there. Then he was happy. I made him to sit on the chair and I did arati to him. So he said, okay, you have passed the test, that determination is needed. If this determination is there, you can achieve self-realization. That day he told me. So your guru attained Mahasamadhi in March of 94. And then, as the story goes, he initiated you into tapas in November of 94. So that's an interesting thing we should discuss. But, but first of all, does the word tapas mean heat? No. <clears throat> tapas means burning, actually. Burning. Uh, you cook the food to make it properly cooked. Here, in the mind, all the acquired habits are there, which are all the imaginations, constant thoughts are there. So that prevents the mind to regain its position as a pure consciousness. So by constantly watching through meditation, a deeper meditation, so you have to burn all those habits of the mind so that the mind becomes purified and regains its form as consciousness. That is where the word of tapas has been word. Tapana means like the goldsmith, puts the gold into the fire and then that is brought into proper shape. So that is what the word tapas means. And sometimes people translate it as spiritual practice, but the way you use the, way you use the term, it's a very sort of deep, intense form of spiritual practice that doesn't even begin until a certain stage that we can discuss in a, in a minute. So um, you don't use the term lightly. Now, now if people were paying attention, I just said that your guru passed away in, the, in March of 94, but then in November of 94, some six months later, he initiated you <clears throat> into tapas, and which means that he appeared, he must have appeared to you in some non-bodily form. Um, so please explain that to us and describe that experience. Well, after my guru passed away, attained samadhi, I had been to his native village, Adivarapeta, where he had dropped his body. And I saw his body sitting there, and then it was put into samadhi. And then afterwards, for a while, I felt void. I was missing him. So when I saw the physical body, this is the physical body we served for 20 years. I gave him food, I gave him oil massage, I gave him a bath, everything. So I started missing him for a while. Then a little bit depressed, I went to Mysore and I went on to the Chamundi Hills. On the Chamundi Hills, there is a place which is a cave is there. 
My guru used to take us sometimes and sit there for a while peacefully. He used to say that this cave was occupied by sage Markandeya in ancient time and he had done tapas there. So I went to that place and I sat in that cave. For about two or three days, I was in meditation, I think. Third day, non-stop, non-stop two or three days. Yes, probably on the third day, I had the vision of my guru. He appeared in a human form and he told, now a time has come that you have to go into tapas. You served selflessly without expecting anything for 20 years. So a seven years uh, fruits of tapas has come to your mind. If you just do another five years of tapas, you will be able to achieve nirvikalpa samadhi, he said. So at that time, I answered, okay, I don't intend to do tapas now. I would like to sing bhajans and would serve you. That's all I feel like. But uh, Swamiji said, I will create circumstances in such a way that you will be forced to come. This time has come now. So then he disappeared. So I came back to Dehradun. And for two to three months, I was simply there. So on the 10th day of November, I think we were doing Arati. And on the dais, his photo was there. So from his photo, I saw him coming out. So then I felt that he was holding my hand. And he took me to the room next to that hall. And he made me sit there on the cot. And he touched between eyebrows and just asked me the same thing. You have to be watching in between eyebrows. You don't have to repeat anything. Just do not imagine anything. And also what I heard is, from this room, you have to come out as a yogi or your dead body must come out. You must not abandon. That was the toughness he always showed while teaching. This much I heard and probably he disappeared and that sent me to a deep meditation. So that was how I sat for tapas and continued that. When you had these visions of him and and you had them monthly for years, um, was it like a concrete form, just as concrete as another human being, or was it more sort of ghostly or diaphanous or subtle? You know, you could see through it or something like that. It was uh, as good as you are seeing me now in the human form, physical form, solidly. He used to appear and then he used to simply disappear after talking to me. Because uh, during the tapas time, I had lost the idea of time and the days that were happening. But he used to tell, I am the divine guru and this is a full moon day. I have manifested. So this is the thing that has to happen now. So that was how I used to come to know that today is a full moon day that he has appeared and then he disappeared. Constantly he was guiding me. Whatever manifestation happens in front of you, whether it is good or bad, do not react. Just watch. That was what he was guiding me all the time. Now, in Yogananda's book, you know, Autobiography of a Yogi, he talks about experiences he had with his guru after his guru uh, dropped the body. I'm puzzled about, you know, 
sometimes it's spoken, I think you even say, that when a liberated being drops the body, it's like a drop of water going into the ocean and it's thereafter indistinguishable from the ocean. There's no more shred of individuality left. And yet you hear all these stories, like the ones you're just telling, of your guru coming to you monthly, and Yogananda had stories, and there are many, many others. And some, some teachers and avatars and so on say that they are going to keep coming back again and again for the sake of their disciples, and the Buddhists have the Bodhisattva vow, where you know, the, the Bodhisattva will come back again and again to help liberate all beings. And so the, the question boils down to, is it possible for a liberated, enlightened being to continue to exist in some form, on some plane of existence, in order to intercede in human affairs, or have they completely ceased to exist, and yet the divine intelligence, which we were talking about before with your dream and the sound you heard and everything, the divine intelligence, through its own volition, takes a form that, people will recognize, like you in your case would recognize the form yes. of your guru. So you think it's the second thing, the latter thing? Yeah, very true. Because uh, the guru are, once they drop the body, they do not exist in that form somewhere in the space or some dimension. They have become one with the all-pervaded divinity. That is the supreme consciousness of existence. But from that supreme consciousness of existence only, when we are invoking or when we would have had a previous resolution, such a manifestation in that form happens. Now, I would like to explain this a little bit technically also. First thing is, first stage I would like to call the quality to imagine by the mind, to be creative. Say, you fall in love with a person and your mind starts visualizing that form. The more and more that your mind visualizes that form, that form starts appearing solidly within your mind. This is the imagination quality. The more the mind becomes concentrated, the picture also becomes more and more solid. And next stage, if you start meditating with that resolution, then after some time, say, about 50% of the mind is gathered, then a mental projection happens. As if a guru has come, that form will be like the uh, spirit form, a little ghost type of forms that you were mentioning a while ago. And the third and final stage, when the mind reaches the tapas stage and it becomes 100% concentrated, before Nirvikalpa Samadhi, it enables the manifestation. Manifestation is the third stage. Manifestation means it will be as physical as this world is. All these three stages are finally recognized as illusion only in spirituality because the self has to merge with that supreme self. That is the self-realization. So before that, if a person has a resolution Say, because I had fallen in love with my guru, I think he had sat in my consciousness so solidly. All the time I was visualizing, throughout the 20 years also, with total faith, whatever he asked me to do, without questioning, I went on doing. 
whether he asked me to clean the toilet, work in the kitchen, or looking after a mentally challenged boy. I never questioned ki why I should be doing this. Why not simply meditation in the 20 years? So my mind receded and became concentrated all the time. So with total faith, I was serving. So probably that enabled the manifestation of my guru also after his passing away from this world when the time came. So he had made me to sit for tapas because there was another incident happened. Uh, in 1978, when I was in Bangalore, it was my birthday. Uh, previous evening, one small girl had brought me a big chocolate and had given it to me as a birthday gift for next day. Early morning at 3.30, I took that to my guru's room and I took milk for him in the morning. So then I told him, today is my birthday. <coughs> Somebody gave this as a gift. Swamiji took that chocolate, he bit into half piece, he took half of the piece and another half that he had bit, he gave it to me. You take this. So uh, asked me to eat it then and there itself immediately. So I ate it. After that, I gave a small piece of vibhuti, the sacred ash, for him to bless. He asked me, why do you need this vibhuti now? I said, Swamiji, I want to do tapas. I want you to bless and give this to me. So probably to test my faith, he asked and made fun of me. Do you think this ash can make you to sit for tapas, idiot? I said, okay, I have faith, Swamiji, you please bless. I can do that one. Then he said, okay, look, if I bless this vibhuti and give it to you, you might do tapas also. But you may not be able to achieve complete nirvikalp samadhi you may get some powers, you may get your own following, but you will become egoistic and you will go away from me. Then I said, you know, I don't need tapas in that case because I want to remain at your feet. I want to serve you. That is my basic idea. I don't want to go away. Then I don't need this tapas. So then Swamiji said, when the time is ripe, it will automatically come. Even if you don't want it, you will be forced to go to that one. Like that he had said. So after that 78, 16 years later, it happened like this manifestation happened. Even when I didn't want to go to tapas, I was made to go to tapas. So that's how this experience happened to me. That is how I would like to tell. This manifestation happened. But the merger is one single self that is the truth that exists. From that only, when you invoke in a particular form or when you have devotion, so the same divine can manifest and give darshan to you in that form. So in my case, it was Shiva Bali Yogi. So when a person becomes liberated or enlightened in this life, before while they're still in the body, there's that phrase in, or that's that word in Vedanta, lesha vidya, some faint remains of ignorance, which supposedly makes it possible for enlightenment to be a living reality. And without that, you wouldn't be able to distinguish any diversity. You wouldn't be able to put a spoon in your mouth because you, you wouldn't be able to distinguish the spoon from your mouth, as I understand that term. Um, so uh, do you agree with that notion? And are you saying that when the body drops, then the lesha vidya drops and uh, there is really nothing left to function in any way, shape or form? 
S, when the body is dropped, that is what we recognize as the Videha Mukti. After dropping the body, you merge finally, that is everything happened. Before that, when the body is alive, it is recognized as Jivan Mukta. You are uh, liberated while alive. So when people have asked me, in my experience, I have told, a small sattvic ego enables me to live in this body. If that is also given up, this body will get dropped. Because of that, like an attachment to my guru's name, Shiva Balayogi, that is a sattvic ego for me. So a little bit of consciousness is in touch with the brain. That is how this body is alive for some time. Then I am able to travel and share my experiences of knowledge, awareness to others. So once that job is done, when I lose all interest, even in the name of my guru also, then this body will get dropped. Then everything ends. There is nothing else to function. I'm going to pursue this a little bit more because this question has always fascinated me and I, I'm, I'm learning new things from you. If the idea is that the soul, you know, evolves through millions of lifetimes, through higher and higher, more, more and more complex life forms, you know, up the, up the path of evolution, doesn't it seem wasteful for God to evolve souls through so many births over so much time only to have them merge into the absolute and cease to exist? Why wouldn't they retain some small sattvic ego even after the body drops once enlightenment is attained in order to maybe in some subtle form continue to serve? And, um, you know, like I said earlier, sometimes saints say they're, they're going to come back again and again for the sake of their devotees. That, that kind of implies that something is retained and even though they're already enlightened or liberated, they're able to take birth again in order to serve. If a person, if an enlightened soul wants to maintain, can do it. But it is still not necessary. It is the divine, it is the all-pervaded divinity which is working this. For example, my Guru Shiva Balayogi, he need not maintain his individuality for sake of his devotees. He has become one with the divine. Now it is up to the devotees, if they have that faith in the name of their Guru, the same divine can always manifest in the form of Shiva Balayogi to anybody. Because there is no difference between Shiva Balayogi and the divinity now. So that is how the things will happen. As long as I, as a devotee of my Guru, maintain that devotion and faith, the same divine can manifest to me as Shiva Balayogi anytime. So there is no need of that individuality to be maintained. That will automatically happen from the divine if the devotee wants. It is not that that self-realized soul wants it. He won't have any such visions or desires left anymore. It is the divine which will take care of this universe and to teach the uh, souls who are all there, it is all happening from the divine. Because once you become self-realized, individuality has lost. Even while alive in the body also, that individuality as I am doing, there is no such thing that I have a mission or I am sharing the knowledge. That idea doesn't come at all. 
it automatically happens. It is called the automatic divine activity that Ramana Maharishi refers to this thing. So that is how it will happen. So one need not keep that individual ego when the body gets dropped. Maybe that's what happened with Jesus also when he appeared to his disciples, you know, after, some days after his crucifixion, you know. Maybe it was just the divine assuming a form that they could relate to. Exactly, because the disciples had that faith in their guru, so the divine appeared in that form as Jesus. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've, I've spoken to a number of people who, to whom Ramana Maharshi appeared, long before they ever had heard of him. Like there was one woman I interviewed a couple of weeks ago who, when she was just a teenage girl, she had this adamant determination that she needed to know the truth. And she sat on her bed and stared at a door for hours and said, this is Pamela Wilson, and said, I want truth to come through that door. She had this determination. And then she went to bed, finally, and she woke up a little while later and this Indian man was sitting on her bed and she threw a pillow at him. <laughs> and, and she still didn't know who he was and then later on maybe years later she saw a book and in a bookstore with his picture and that was the man that i saw so it just fascinates me that the divine works in this very intelligent way it's you know any any thought of the absolute being a flat colorless you know unintelligent sort of nothingness is blown away by these kinds of stories i mean it's just this profound intelligence that's running the show it seems yeah because it is the divine which is the source of intelligence so he, the divine is beyond all this so divine is not binded by any particular rules or law of the nature so the divine can work out in any way he wants and i would presume that you would use the term divine synonymously with god right Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. Um, beautiful. So, um, incidentally, people listening, we have about, it uh, looks like 160 or so people listening to the live stream. If you want to send in a question, uh, go to thatgap.com, go to the upcoming interviews page, and then go, which is under future interviews or something, and then go to the bottom of that page. There's a form you can fill out to send in a question. Uh, and some people have already sent some in, which I'll be asking in a while. Um, so let's talk about your, your tapas. So you were initiated into tapas in November 94, and you began to practice it. And you practiced an average of 20 hours a day for five years. And as you said, the, uh, Baba, your master said to you, either you should come out of yoga or your dead body should come out. Put in efforts until the last breath of life. So I'd like to know a little bit about your experience during that time. Um, you mentioned during your book that sometimes it became very painful and uncomfortable um, and, uh, you know, your head would be on fire and you, you know, there'd be all this discomfort, but you just plowed on through. Um, you know, just, just give us a sense of what that five years was like doing that much intense tapas. Ah. Uh. First, I would like to give the idea of what uh, tapas and meditation that my guru said, a criteria. When you close the eyes and when you are able to keep the mind quiet and totally focused into single-pointedness for at least one hour, that is the real meditation, he said. 
until then you are trying to meditate like this when you are able to keep the mind at least for 8 to 10 hours in a stretch one single stretch of sitting then the tapas begins after that your determination your ability to forbearance that patience is also very important all these are all put to test like two different circumstances when my guru sat for tapas physically and surrounding there were no better or comfortable uh, situations or any such facilities were not there he was sitting in the mud and then only after some time only devotees built a temple and then he sat there whereas when i sat inside that room there was an attached bathroom also was there so after that 18 to 20 hours when i get up i could go and pour some water on me to have a bath and then come and sit and they were few of them people serving me looking after me once in 24 hours they used to come and they used to bring some form of food some liquid food like amba shivaranjani was one such who served me very dedicatedly like a mother in those days she used to come from delhi and after two years after i sat for tapas she permanently came and settled into the ashram giving up her home totally she was looking after very dedicatedly she gave me a vegetable soup or some rice and dal in liquid form so that type of thing suited me more than the milk so i used to have all these things but however and eligibility and patience all these are always tested body's enormous pains do happen and sometimes burning sensation sometimes i once i had fallen and hit my head onto the wall so a lump had appeared on the head and it was amba who watched me then ki baba ji what has happened to you on the head then only i noticed so these type of things also happen but uh, enormous detachment vairagya when a firm conviction that this world is impermanent and this body is going to die this is one opportunity before this body dies that we can know ourselves we can become aware of ourselves as that immortal soul so that uh, dedicated priority in the mind will always see us to go through and the manifestation of guru also encouraged always to have the forbearance and keep going keep going all these things were happening <clears throat> whenever such visions were coming other type of visions were also coming sometimes it could be some temptation or sometimes it could be threatening type of things so all the time my guru had advice do not react to them it is the ability that you keep in the consciousness totally quiet that quietness silence needs to be achieved so just watch whatever happen nothing will happen to you they might try to come and wrench your neck but they won't do it you should not react that's all if you react your tapas will fall you will go back 
So this is what happened because the mind will run away again. So this was the basic thing that he taught. It is the reverse journey, like the mind becomes quiet and quiet and concentrates. Slowly you lose consciousness of the surroundings and one day the body also. But your own consciousness of existence is always there. That is maintained. You do not disappear or you do not become unconscious also. That is the most important thing. That is how gradually attention shifts to your own self instead of its imaginations. Yeah, in your book you mentioned in samadhi you do not vanish. Your existence is always there, just like you just said. Only the thought of I, mine, me, God vanishes. Yes, that is the last thought that vanishes is the thought of I, that individuality. Before that, it could be very awful because that I do not want to disappear. It wants to maintain its egoistic existence to keep you in this world. That's what the thing. But if you remain totally determined and ready to die, anything happens, no problem. But this I must go. I want that truth of existence only. Then that I also vanishes, that doership, everything vanishes. Then only self exists, that effortlessly it is there. But the idea of this is the self will also be not there. Simply you exist, that is all. And that is supremely peaceful and totally contented. Did you sleep at all during this period? Like when you took a... Sometimes, yeah. In those four, five hours, I used to come out after having some food. About an hour, I used to rest quietly. So I used to lie down so that the food could be digested. And then I used to get up, then go back to the meditation. And I don't, rem I don't remember of totally sleeping. It was a relaxing. I used to lie down. Did, it have, did the habit become established to for pure awareness to be maintained during sleep, if you were sleeping at all. And these days, uh, this is a little bit tangential question, but these, w do you consider witnessing sleep or, or maintaining pure awareness during sleep to be a, an important criterion of awakening or not so much? It is. Even a dream could occur, even now also, because the dream gets produced by the brain. But that is simply watched as a witness without feeling any involvement into the dream. It doesn't appear that I am there. A picture appears, it's a vague picture appears, and then it's over. You are simply watching as a witness. When you were doing tapas in that room, um, were you just sitting on a cot and were you sitting without back support or were you sort of leaning against something? Or I know that's a sort of a superficial question, but I'm just trying to picture uh, In those days, I sat without any back support. I was sitting on a cot. And interesting, I mean, I couldn't picture myself. I've done some long meditation things, but usually it's, you know, an hour and then break it up and do some asanas and then another hour like that. Being able to sit for, I've never sat for six or seven or eight hours or anything. I'm wondering if among your students, 
Um, has anyone been able to do anything even closely resembling what you did, even for a day or two, or are, are they all just able to go a couple of hours before having to take a break? A few of them have said that they are able to sit for six hours, five to six hours uh, they've been practicing. Because it seems like, you know, if, if people try to emulate what you did, everyone's going to be discouraged because nobody could measure up to that kind of routine, you know. Yeah, it would be very difficult. It requires a, lot, a bit practice. Even in those 20 years of my service to Swamiji, uh, he used to come to Dehradun Ashram for two to three months in a year. And the rest of the year, I used to be there after attending to morning chores of the ashram, uh, taking care of cleaning and doing some puja. So then I used to prepare a couple of chapatis and then retire in the backyard used to be a lot of bushes and mango trees were there. I used to go and sit under the tree and practice the six to seven hours of meditation sitting. And after that, I used to come out. Then I used to feel hungry, eat those couple of chapatis, then come back to ashram. So like that also for a long, long time, I practiced these things. And before coming to Dehradun ashram also, for four years on the Chamundi hills, uh, there is another cave called Nagaratirtha, which the priest of the temple had shown me. So there I used to go. Many times I used to tell my mother I am going to classes. Then I used to go on to the hill and quietly meditate there whole day, seven to eight hours, and then used to come down. Sometimes uh, this, uh, like this I practiced. So a long time practice is definitely necessary. There's a there's a saying these days. You know, so many people sit so much at their jobs, or they sit in front of their computers. They don't get much physical activity. And there's a saying which is, "Sitting is the new smoking." What they mean by that is that just sitting a lot without exercise can really be bad for your body. The way smoking is bad. And I'm just wondering why yogis like yourself manage to stay. So healthy with so much sitting without any physical activity. Uh, I agree. If you are sitting for a long time without proper exercises, the body parts can get affected. So I've been practicing yoga exercises. So even in those five hours, five years also, when I came out for four or five hours, so after some food and some rest, or sometimes before taking a food, I used to do some exercise and uh, a couple of people who were looking after used to massage my legs and hands very much. So that was how I could keep my body. Like my own guru, his body could not be looked after during his tapas. So when he sat, his legs and hands didn't grow properly and his hands had become totally joined like this. And even after a lot of massage, after 12 years tapas, it came out. But his fingers totally remained joined. He could never straighten it. So that type of any de deformity or trouble problem can occur if it is not taken care properly. Okay, good. Um, now let's switch and talk about the actual mechanics of the meditation that you have practiced and that you teach, uh, Jangama Dhyana. 
I guess one question is, why don't you explain the mechanics of it briefly, and then then I'll have some questions for you about it. Uh, in this, uh, you can sit in any comfortable posture. I ask people to keep the back and neck straight, keeping the eyes closed. You have to concentrate your mind and sight in between eyebrows and just keep watching there without repeating any mantra or name, no need. And also we ask, do not imagine anything. So these two things, watching and do not imagine are very important. Throughout the duration of meditation, do not open your eyes. If you set half an hour, one hour, two hours, in that period, do not open your eyes is also important. So now watching technology, mind has two aspects, thinking and watching. These two are different aspects of the mind. If the mind is totally preoccupied into thinking, it cannot watch 100% properly. If it is watching, means observing. If you achieve that watching 100%, then your mind automatically stops thinking. When you close the eyes, hundreds and thousands of thoughts arise, thoughts and visions. Watching them, mind has a tendency to analyze. This is good, this is bad, why not this? And gets involved. One thought goes, another thought is absorbed. One thought goes, another thought is absorbed by analyzing. So instead of analyzing, you are taught just to watch. Watch in between eyebrows. Do not think whether those thoughts are good or bad. What? Don't try to know what it is. Then all the thoughts can disappear. Then the pure consciousness happens. This is the basic technique I try to teach. As you know, of course, there are many different kinds of meditation using mantras, aphorisms, breath control. This is a question that Clifford actually sent in. Uh, body feeling, lights, visions, attention to different parts of the body, sounds. Would you um, say that different types of meditation are better for different people? Or would you say that are, there are qualitative differences between different kinds of meditation? Some are more effective than others. How would you, like, here's, uh, a, here's a question that just came in from a guy named Faisal in Lebanon. He said, I get a headache and feel anger when I try to do the third eye meditation, yet when I rest my mind in the heart center, I go into deep meditation easily. Why am I experiencing such a difference between the two locations? So would you say that for Faisal, maybe it's better to do that kind of meditation? Uh, not like that. If you watch gently, politely in between eyebrows, do not rush. Sometimes uh, we have a tendency to rush and force it upon. If thousands of thoughts are coming, it could be awful and torturesome. At that time, people try to force it upon. Do not force gently and politely. Maybe you are straining unnecessarily. If you simply watch in between eyebrows, even if it is not possible in between eyebrows immediately, because the eyeballs move parallelly, they don't come into one direction easily. It takes some time. Steadily you watch, skillfully keep watching the front portion, then slowly it will come. Then it will not be straining at all. So you should not rush. 
because all methods are equally respectful, there are two things. In this method, which was practiced in ancient India also, this was the technique obtained by my guru from the divine manifestation. That's why we would like to teach. This is like directly getting recruited as an officer. Means in this you are giving the mind to become quiet on its own without any external anchor. If you go on watching, mind becomes quiet, quiet, and one day when it is 100% concentrated, it would easily go introvert and merges with the self without getting stuck anywhere else. Whereas so many methods are all there, they can serve like preliminary round exercise of focusing first. You first practice the concentration of the mind, like a chant of a mantra, or you concentrate on the breath or any body part. If you imagine that, then the mind can become concentrated, but it is likely to get struck there also. To make it to go introvert, you have to give up that practice and become quiet. That is important. Just like if you have read Ramakrishna Paramahamsa's life, Mother Kali always appeared. He did tapas as a devotee of Kali, visualizing Kali. Then when Totapuri came and wanted to teach him Nirvikalp Samadhi, then he said, uh, I am able to withdraw the mind from everything, but Mother Kali is always there. Then getting annoyed, it is said, the story says he, he pierced in between eyebrows with a glass piece, and that was when Ramakrishna went into Nirvikalp Samadhi. So that is how the idea of all these methods are to practice the concentration first. And then it has to go introvert. But in this method, it can directly go introverted because there is no anchor that you are giving. Simply using the eyeball, you are trying to bring the mind concentrated. And very soon you will realize the mind is trying to watch itself. If it can give up all the thoughts and visions that it is holding through the watching process, then automatically it starts watching itself. Its attention goes on to itself. Just now the mind is preoccupied with its imaginations. Just like if you are watching a movie, your mind gets sucked into that consciousness. Everything that is happening in the movie appears as if it's happening to you. You get involved. Say a yogi comes and awakens up you. Come on, you are just watching a movie. Nothing is happening to you. You are perfectly all right. Then your conscious come back and you will realize you are simply watching that. Nothing was happening to you. In the same way, a mind is becoming happy, unhappy, fearful, confused, everything due to its own imaginations. When all these imaginations go away, then its attention goes to itself. That is how the awareness of the self occurs eventually and the mind goes into samadhi. So in this meditation you teach, your eyes are closed, right? And, yes. And you are actually physically, uh, with your eyes closed, trying to kind of direct your gaze, your eyeballs. If, if your eyes were open, people would see your eyeballs kind of going up, kind of yes. cross-eyed up, up to this area. So explain once more, why is that 
useful? Why does it work? You're not actually seeing anything because your eyes are closed. So how is it that directing the eyeballs upward and to the center actually helps draw the mind within? Even if it is difficult to go upward also is not necessary. In the same level, you bring both eyeballs to the... We call it as the vanishing point. If you write a drawing of a road, you go on roadie, and then it comes to the vanishing point that is called. The same way when both eyeballs come, then the vision is lost. Then the mind comes 100%. It holds. The eyes are strongest of the sensory organs. It can hold the withdraw and hold the mind very strongly without any external anchor. There is no other imagination, no other thought, no other holding. Simply eyes are watching and eyes are not watching any particular form also. You are just watching in between eyebrows, but no form, no name, nothing is given. So thus, you are watching and not watching anything actually. That is when the mind comes back because mind is made up of consciousness and energy. Both are inseparable. This is the Shiva and Shakti concept that has been told in ancient times. Shiva means your existence in thoughtlessness state. Nishcheshtit is the Sanskrit word used. Like in Hinduism, when the body dies, it is known as Shava, means it won't move anymore, it is finished. But Shiva appears to be inert, but it is not inert. It is supremely consciousness. That is the concept. So when mind gathers, its attention goes introvert. Just now, its attention is towards its imagination. Consciousness means wherever you apply your consciousness, you become aware of it. When I am talking, if all of you apply your mind onto me, your consciousness onto me, then you will become aware of what I am trying to talk and convey. In the same way, just now, that consciousness has become mind and is preoccupied with its own imaginations. When it imagines, its attention also is onto the imagination. So that imagination has to be finished. When that finishes, then the attention is onto itself. The mind watches itself. That is when you will realize mind is nothing but the consciousness and consciousness is nothing but you, yourself. It is all the same. From the self, consciousness has sprouted. From the consciousness, mind has sprouted and the imaginations all have sprouted. Simply you have to take it back to the self like this by quietening. I'm sure you're aware that in the Gita, chapter 6, verse 13, there's a thing about fixing the gaze on the tip of the nose. And Shankara's commentary was that if fixing the gaze on the tip of the nose were actually literally meant there, the mind would be left with the nose, but without God. Um, so I'm not questioning whether your meditation technique draws the awareness within. Obviously it does. I'm just trying to understand the mechanics, because if your eyes are closed... What difference does it make what direction your eyes are pointing in? You, they can't see anything, whether they're pointing this way or this way or this way. They just don't see it <clears throat> if they're closed. So, no. Uh, yeah. Because 
if the eyeballs are constantly moving, it gives a jerk to the mind and keeps the mind into spinning. The mind cannot stop. This eyeballs constantly moving and wavering is one of the basic reasons for the mind's inability to go into samadhi. Even Patanjali has said this. So the idea is to hold the eyeballs into one-pointedness. If possible, to the center, in between eyebrows, slowly you bring. As you go on, simply when you are watching, then the eyeballs also steadily stop into one point. There, you don't have any imagination of that point. What it is, it is neither the tip of the nose, nor the in-between eyebrows. No imagination. You simply hold on to that. Then you are watching. When you are watching, you will see slowly all the thoughts disappear. All the visions disappear one by one. They all go get evaporated. They are all the acquired habits of the mind. Sometimes I tell jokingly, it is the garbage of the mind is being thrown out. You just keep watching. Don't think what it is. So then this thing happens. The mind becomes totally silent. When it is silent, its attention all turns to itself. That's when you become aware. That's when the stability to the mind comes. Eventually, when this mind 100% comes here, it lifts the body consciousness also upwards. The body consciousness, generally known as Kundalini, this Kundalini is nothing but another part of the mind. It is also a consciousness because of which you have obtained yourself as the body consciousness. When this is also lifted, compared to the Kundalini, mind is much more stronger. A seeker is always advised to control the mind first. Then it automatically lifts the body consciousness on its own. They both become one mass, then gets delinked from the brain's clutches. That is when a seeker can feel as if he is here for a while. You see, this place has been explained as thousand petals, Sahasra Rakamala. Means it is only a symbolically worded thing. There is no thousand petals, lotus is not there actually. But if the mind is here, means it is now totally purified and blossomed like a lotus and is ready to go to Samadhi. That is the idea of this practice. That will what happens. Then you lose location and samadhi starts up occurring to you automatically. That is the usefulness of this method of meditation. There's a term that's in vogue these days called spiritual bypassing. And what is meant by that term is that sometimes people can achieve some sort of awakening and yet uh, a lot of things haven't been worked out yet. A lot of clashes or samsaras or some scars or something and it ends up causing trouble in, in their behavior so I, I gather from what you just said that what you're attempt what you're teaching is kind of like a master switchboard and if you can in, enliven or awaken that it will automatically 
take care of the other things. For, for instance, some might say, well, you really need to focus on the heart to develop the heart. And if you're just focusing here, you might focus, you might develop this level without developing the heart. So there would be a spiritual bypassing. Um, but I, I think you're saying that this will pull all the others along, like you pull one leg of a table and all the other legs are going to come, come along. Exactly. Because this will happen only when the mind is totally purified. All vasanas, all acquired habits, everything disappears. Then mind becomes totally purified. So there is uh, no bypassing has to happen. It will happen once it is purified. Then the body consciousness also gets lifted. Only then that will start merging into the self when samadhi comes. That is when the self-realization will be total and complete. Effortlessly, once for all, this consciousness, abandoning all its cravings, it will go and settle into the self and remains there totally contented, giving you a self-realization. So that is why this has been practiced in ancient Rigvedic era also. This is the one of the highest methods that is recommended. This is totally useful. See, even if you want to see at the heart, it is no problem for a while. But you have to understand, you see, you cannot bring the eyeballs downwards like this to see the heart. You have to close the eyes and you have to imagine as if you are concentrating on to the heart. That is when the mind becomes purified and has to go introverted. So that is what will has to happen eventually. So then only total purification must happen for the samadhi to occur. So then only the abnormal behaviors would not happen. One would be able to observe and then only a person can be a good teacher also, will be able to present what really happens. You use the word imagination a lot and how we need to come out of imagination. Here, here's a question that came in from Lalita in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She asked, It is easy to get stuck in the imagination of our personal stories. How do we let go of our attachment to our stories and how important is it uh, that we do so? Just by watching them, do not try to analyze. Let go the thing is very important because you have to realize simply by imagining you cannot achieve anything. So you have to let go. The past is not going to come back. It is over. Past is meant so that you just learn a lesson. You don't repeat them. More than that, you should not allow the mind to go into a complete brooding and you can plan for your future, but need not be anxious. So thus you can keep the mind into the present. Present is always a purified state and which will be totally at peace and enjoyable. So like this, you can overcome from all those stories. You must have a firm conviction. They are all imagination. It really does not exist. The past does not exist. It is over. A future also does not exist. Until it does not come to the present, there is no evidence. Both are simply in your memory and imaginations. If you realize this, you will be able to give up easily and make the mind go introvert. 
Here's a question that came in from Cornell in Kingston, Jamaica, which is in the Caribbean. He said, I have only encountered you through a computer screen, and I doubt I will ever be with you in person because of physical distance. Can the guru-devotee relationship truly exist even when the devotee never gets to be with the guru in person? It is possible if you develop total faith and cultivate that then you will be able to feel the Guru within you. Then you will see the guidance also comes to you constantly. The grace will descend depending on your faith. That is why faith is important. My Guru always said, you can lose anything, but do not lose faith. I also jokingly tell, you can become annoyed with me, but do not throw away the photo that you buy. That is your faith. Do not allow that faith to be disturbed. So in present day world, there is so many things are there to be in touch. You can write an email to me directly, which I will deal with. If you go to our website, the spiritual questions email address is there. You can always write. And a app is also developed as Shri Babaji, in which I have given this technique and there is a time capsule also. You can set for 10 minutes, 20 minutes. In the beginning, I have told the technique. And after that time, a wake up shloka prayer is also told. So like that, you can be in touch with me always and you will feel my presence within you. Finally, it is your total faith that is needed. Your, your determination and the strength that you had to do the kind of tapas you did are extraordinary and you know you're a monk i'm wondering if you advocate celibacy to your students in order to somehow culture greater strength and make their practice more effective or don't you comment on that it is recommended though we do not insist upon but the celibacy is important because if you want to devote that much of time if you need to what you want to become is important. If you simply want to practice one hour of meditation or one or two and then live a stress-free life, it is all right. But if you want to become a self-realized soul, then you will have to go that much. Like, for example, if you want to become a college teacher, you will have to prepare yourself that much. But if you want to become the President of United States, you will have to prepare that much. That much of dedication, that much of time, everything will have to be given. So finally, it is for you what you want to become. I wanted self-realization. That's why I totally dedicated into this life. That's how we could achieve. I think maybe you might want to not use that president analogy for the next four years or so. It doesn't quite hold up with reality. <laughs> um, here's an interesting question from Geddes in Bristol, which I believe is in the UK. He or she said, I'm addicted to different, to seeing different clairvoyants, psychics, mediums, and tarot card readers for guidance in life. Even if they're supposed to be the best in the world, they often confuse me even more. I still, yet I still go back to them. How can I stop being dependent on their readings? Even though I meditate, I still can't find clear answers on how to make right decisions in life and not make mistakes. Sometimes I avoid making any big changes in life because I'm afraid of making a mistake, which may cause me suffering. Perhaps it's better to make a mistake rather than take no action and stay in limbo. So the question again is about seeing 
clairvoyance and mediums and so on, and how can you dis- how can you know how to make be be more self sufficient, I guess, in terms of making the right decisions in life. You see, spirituality teaches you to learn to face the moment. People are always afraid to face the results. If you are ready to face the results as it comes, for this, my guru said, try to live like a soldier. When the soldier goes to battlefield, he knows either he will do it or he will die. Both are equally acceptable. That's why he is never confused. This life is also like that. You have a desire, you put an effort, you try. As the result comes, simply accept it. If it has not happened today, it will happen tomorrow. You try again and try again. Like this, if you go, you don't need tarot readers, you don't need any other things. You just need your own confidence. That is what is needed. If you practice meditation, meditation will give you more confidence in yourself and belief in yourself that you can do it. And it will also help you to face the moment as it happens totally peacefully. Then life will be more peaceful instead of getting confused like this. Do people sometimes come to you with personal questions such as, should I get married? Should I go to college? Should I get this job? And do you Do you actually answer such questions or do you just tell them to meditate and they'll know the right thing to do themselves. We generally advocate them to meditate and decision will have to be yours. We can help you to arrive at a decision. So never get confused. You ponder over your own mind what you want to do and do like that. Once you have done, accept the responsibility and go. Learn adjustment and management that will help you to be stabilized in life always. Those who can adjust and manage will always be happy. This is what is my advice to everybody. To um, I have a question that actually relates to the one we were just discussing. Um, you mentioned in your book, quote, in many legends you will read of people or even demons performing tapas in which their minds become concentrated to the maximum. Then God has to come and give them whatever they ask. So my question is, how does one balance asking God for what you want with surrendering to whatever God wants? You probably never heard of the Rolling Stones, but they're a musical group, and they had a song in which they said, you can't always get what you want, but you get what you need. So on the one hand, you know, you could have this adamant determination to get a certain thing, but it may not be in your best interest. So on the other hand, you could be totally passive and not, you know, desire anything and say, oh, let God just, you know, give me whatever I need. But then you might be too passive and not taking dynamic action. So how do you find a balance between surrender to God and determination to achieve something that you desire? See, uh, one example my guru used to give, if you ask God, you will end up asking a small chocolate. You allow God to give you, God wants to give you supermarket itself. So if you surrender to the divine, what is needed, what you are looking for is peace, happiness, and contentment. Ask God to give you these things. That will only keep you always happy. Not the things that you want, because everything is impermanent in this world. You start imagining your happiness 
is in a chocolate or is in a property is in a dollar but that may not be the thing which will give you happiness happiness is when you have contentment when you have peace within yourself ask for these things and practice meditation to achieve these things then you will have everything sounds like what jesus said seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else shall be added unto thee i'm sure you've heard that phrase <clears throat> yes um these days there are a lot of spiritual teachers around um many of whom i've interviewed i've interviewed 400 people and um you say do not be in a hurry to become a guru yourself and and i would say in the case of many people they i know in the zen tradition after your realization you're supposed to wait 10 years before taking on a teaching function um and yet many of these people seem to be really helpful to to others they don't necessarily claim to be an ultimate final teacher or anything like that but you know when we go to school we have a, a teacher in the second grade who wouldn't be qualified to teach college courses but they're helpful to us in the second grade you know so what do you think about all these literally hundreds of of people these days many of them westerners who are teaching satsangs and functioning as spiritual teachers um what do you feel about their activity uh they can be helpful for those people who are in the kindergarten who are learners to a certain extent that might be helpful definitely but if a person wants to become a self realized uh the teacher whatever would have achieved depending on that only such a teacher would try to create an awareness so what people want it depends on that so if you are happy with a small learning so then these teachers are also can be helpful at least to motivate others we don't rule out completely i have spoken what my guru told us to become a better disciple first don't be in a rush to become guru means uh the important idea through that you do not think that you have become 100% perfect so as long as you don't have that ego it's no problem you want to teach whatever you know a little bit i would say many of the people i referred to i would define them as self-realized as i understand it and i think they would but most of them would also say i'm still a work in progress that and so so i guess a question i could ask you is um are there stages of self realization uh, and you could actually be self realized and yet still undergo further refinement or development of some sort and is there a stage at which no further development is possible you've reached the pinnacle either you are not realized or you have become realized it is as simple as like this for me once you are realized that is done you have come to know of that thing after knowing which you don't have to know anything else that is self realization once that has happened so you became self realized in 99 as i understand it and uh that's almost 20 about 18 years ago now um do you feel that in these past 18 years there has been any further growth progress learning refinement any of that or has it really been just sort of a static state that one, that you achieved and that's it yeah it's the same 
what I was 18 years ago, so what was achieved? It is the same. There is contentment, total peace, and that awareness. It is the same. It continues. Okay. Well, let me see. I think I've pretty much asked most of the questions that came in, or else we just covered them anyway. Are there any sort of final words that you would like to say to people? Perhaps something we neglected to discuss or some, some thoughts you would like to leave people with? We as humanity have tremendously advanced through science and technology, but unfortunately have forgotten spirituality. That is why there is still conflicts amongst human beings. There is dissatisfaction. There is no peace. We all talk of peace, but do not practice peace. So we need to take spirituality also along with science and technology, because through spirituality teaches the mind to be cultured, and through that we can utilize the discoveries and inventions that we are making without creating harm to this earth or to humanity, to others, towards fellow beings, towards other creatures also, we need to be more responsible. So thus, it is important to practice spirituality. That's what I would advocate. Whereas we have respect for all subjects, whether it is science or technology, everything can be useful if you practice spirituality. That's what I would like to advise. Do you feel that if there were enough of an upsurge in spirituality in the world that all these terrible problems of global warming and famine and war and all these other things would kind of melt away? Do you feel like all those are really s symptoms of a lack of, of proper spiritual development? Yeah, I feel that human beings can become more matured, better. Because I have never liked to call anybody as bad or wrong. Only some are matured, some are not matured. Through spirituality, humanity can become more matured to consider about each other, to love and honor each other, to respect the things that we have been given. So that's why I would advocate spirituality. Very good. All right. Well, thank you so much, Babaji. I really appreciated the time we spent together. Um, Bruce said probably we need to take a few breaks, but we didn't take any breaks. <laughs> you just kept going. Yeah, you made me very comfortable and it was very interesting. Your questions were also very interesting, giving me an opportunity to share my experience. And thank you for that. Thank you to Batcap for giving this opportunity to me. Yeah, thank you. Thank and, you very um, much, honored. We're recording this in uh, May 1st. Um, 2017, you're in the U.S. now, and you're going to be touring around. So people who are listening to this now, I'll, I'll have a link to your website on my website, and they can go there and see what your tour schedule is. And, uh, you know, maybe they'll be able to connect with you in, in some city. And if, you, if someone's listening to this a few years from now or something, then go to the website anyway and see what the tour s schedule will be. I presume you'll be doing this for a while. Hopefully, I will too. Um, Definitely. Yeah, maybe we'll do another Definitely. one one of these days. 
Yeah, so definitely. So thank because you so much. Uh, it very was, interesting talking to you. Uh, likewise, it's, it's really an honor, and I've I've really enjoyed talking to you. Let me make a, just a couple of general wrap-up points. I've been conducting an interview with Shiva Rudra Balayogi, um, as most of you know by now, if you've been listening to it. And um, I continue to do these interviews once a week. And if you would like to be notified of future ones or check out past ones, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and um, look at the menus there. And you can. There's also an audio podcast you can sign up for. There's an at-a-glance menu. If you go to that, you'll see everything summarized that is available on the site. Um, I think that's about it for now. So, oh, and there's a donate button on the site, which I appreciate people clicking if they can. It helps to make this whole thing possible. So, again, thank you very much, sir. It's really been a, a pleasure and a, an honor to speak with you. And have a wonderful tour in, in the U.S. And give my love to Clifford and Agastya and everyone else there. They are all here. They are conveying their love to you. Good. And thank you so much. My love and blessings. All the best to Batcap. You have been doing a wonderful job of creating this awareness helping people to know about spirituality so much. Mm. Oh, wonderful. All the best to your efforts. Thank you very much.